right. I'm here this week with Ryan Baldy, who's written a new book called The Dream Factory, which is about youth football and a, a really deep dive into the world of youth football. So, uh, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Great. So, I guess you opened the book with a, a sort of anecdote from Tony Whelan, a longtime United coach, who talks about his sort of passion, deep passion for the game. Uh, and especially youth football and uh, sort of this pastoral sense he has of need to look after the younger players. And I, I, I guess that's my, my first question, really, the inspiration behind why you took on this project and why you wanted to look at um, a kind of curious part of the football world. That That's exactly it. You, you kind of um, put your finger in it there. It was like a, a general curiosity I think a lot of fans will share. I think a lot of people know which clubs have a good good academy and which, which don't have a particularly productive academy based on the, the, the number of players coming through to the first team. But I don't think generally many fans know what goes into that on, on a kind of deeper level. I, I was the same. I just wanted to kind of know more about that. And yeah, that, that was the idea to go and explore it, to try and get in into these places if I could. To be honest, I didn't think it would be possible. I thought it's, it's quite a closed off world, or at least right. it seems to be from the outside. Clubs keep their cars pretty close to their chest with what goes on behind academy doors. I think because uh, more often than not, the stories that come out are negative. So I think they probably just try to bat it away and anything that does come out is from sort of club controlled media so I didn't think they'd let an outsider in to go and have a have a nose around but fortunately I found that the people doing the day-to-day work the coaches the academy managers and were really keen to kind of show their work and show the the positive aspects of what they do and they're also really aware uh, and cognizant of the of the negatives too and weren't shying away from those so I was able to go in and get a, a really kind of balanced view of, of academy life so I spent a couple of years going up and down the country I think I visited about 12 academies from you know, right at the top of the of the top, the Uniteds, the Cities, um, the Liverpools, uh, down to like Shrewsbury Town. I went to Fulham, Kidderminster, and right. like the seventh tier. So you get you get a complete full perspective of for everything that goes on, and hear stories from parents and players and coaches and administrators and people who are setting policies and things like that. So yeah, I just wanted to give as 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 wide and broad a perspective as possible, but also bring that kind of personal detail to which which is what I was trying to do. Yeah, and policy plays a, a really distinct part in the the book, doesn't it? From the the academy at Lillishall, if people remember that many years ago, the FA Centre to the Elite Player Performance Plan and the controversies around that. I'm not sure it's the central theme of your book, but it sort of plays a very distinct role in how clubs think about player production, the factory element of it, and player transfer value and the the impact it has on the players themselves. I mean, was that a kind of surprise on about how how much policy is affecting and shaping how the world of youth football works? Perhaps not. I know there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of... There are mixed feelings even within the game about EPPP, the Elite Player Performance yeah. Plan, which is the current set of rules that governs youth football in the top four tiers. It's been in place for about a decade now and I think there's some disenchantment with it, but it's, it's definitely driven change and, and raised standards, but I think there's still a long way to go. So... What I was intrigued to find out was how those people kind of living by those rules on a day-to-day basis, the players and, and, and the coaches felt about them, what they thought needed to be tweaked, what they thought needed to be kept. Um, and then speaking to the people who were in charge of that and um, setting these policies, as we said, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that they feel as though they're a lot closer to cracking the big issues of aftercare and welfare than, right. than the lived experiences of the, of the players and the parents that I spoke to. So it was interesting to me to find that the policy that they believe is, if not completely adequate, then pretty close to it, is is probably further further short of it than they than they quite realise. Yeah, and I guess there's two 
particularly controversial aspects. One is the care of the players and and players being dumped as early as I think you have an anecdote from a player who's maybe seven and got a re- mm. a form rejection email and and so yeah let's talk about that for a little bit the the, the impact on players of it being this kind of almost a production line I mean twelve I think it's twelve thousand you mentioned kids going through academies at any one time of all stand and a half a percent will ever make it to the first mm. team or something like that. Yeah, it's there's just so much attrition. That I don't think it's a, it's a good thing. I spoke to the journalist David Conn about it, who's done a lot right. of work around um, aftercare and the lack thereof within the elite academies. And he he put it in a really interesting way. He said that if we accept and we we know and we acknowledge that even a conservative, favourable on the football club side estimate of of the process would say that you know ninety percent of these players don't get through. That's being very generous to these clubs because it's probably a lot higher than that who don't who don't yeah. end up having a career in the game. If we accept that ninety percent don't get through, then that's ninety percent of the of the of the kids who are being dragged into the system who are leaving before the end of the process. So we can't think of these um these uh, academies as, as dream factories to, to borrow the, the, the title of the book mm. we've got to think of them as broken dream factories that is their primary product is, right. is, is heartbreak essentially so there needs to be a, a flipping of the focus to the, that those players who don't get through should be the primary focus because those are those are the major product that they produce so that was an interesting way of looking at it and, and what I was very fascinated to find out was that most of the coaches I spoke to pretty much to a man or a woman would agree that Academies are taking clubs too young and they're taking too many of them. Tony Whelan expressed a similar sentiment. I, I cited the example of Bayern Munich doing away with, I think, the, I think the 9s and the 10s or something. Yeah, no, I think they're not recruiting players below the under-12 level anymore. And most of the coaches I spoke to would, would love to see a similar thing adopt. And a lot of work that goes on now in academies, of you know, the ones who are really working towards making it an enriching experience for these kids, is all about protecting childhood, as, as, as Tony Whelan said, kind of ring-fencing this, the... the, the kind of naivety of, of childhood and the, and the fun of it all and, and not making it too serious too soon. A lot of clubs now, um, Burnley were one, oh, they've had, they've made wholesale changes to their academy since I was there, which is a whole separate topic. But John Pepper, who was who was the academy manager when I went there, talked to me about how they do kind of multi-sport programs and they'll have nights where on one of their allocated nights to be with their youngsters, they'll just take them to the cinema or take them to laser right. course or something and just have that kind of bonding time with them. Um, so yeah, I think there's an acknowledgement from the, the people who are doing the day-to-day work that the system isn't right. They're working within it and trying to, I think, do the best they can. But the system itself, the the lawmakers and the clubs, I call it the the, the, the arms race for talent because um, they're all after the the best young talent as young as possible in, in as great quantity as possible for fear of their rivals snapping up and, and they're missing out. You know, they don't want to miss out on the next. Rashford or or Foden um, for fear of the other club getting them, so they're chasing these four and five year olds and trying to bring them all in as right. early as possible. So it's, it kind of perpetuates. And and some of the skullduggery that goes on is, I guess, a result of that that competition between clubs for ever younger players to to hoover them up. And there's anecdotes of, although I think it happens less these days, and there's more professionalism in youth recruitment, but of people hiding behind trees and <laughs> passing out business cards in car parks and trying to get in touch with parents and offering inducements in, in at bars in holidays and, and all yeah. sorts of stuff. So, I mean, do you get a sense of that competition still driving those kind of behaviours? Are, are, we, are we getting to a point where the balance between... You know, trying to recruit everyone versus thinking about the the actual humans involved is, is yeah. there. Yeah, 
I'm sure that there are best practices in place now and clubs are more aware of these kind of practices that go on. But as long as that, that arms race for talent perpetuates, as long as they're still wanting as many kids as they do and bringing as many in as they do, those sorts of things are going to happen because scouts are, are fighting to justify their own existence and trying to move up the ladder themselves. Parents are sold the dream themselves by, by the thousands and, yeah, and clubs are bringing in these players in, in waves and in an effort, like I said, to kind of one up or just keep up with the Joneses essentially always looking over the fence and seeing what you know Man United might be looking at what Man City doing and vice versa and always wanting to stay one step ahead so that, that that's what leads to what, what goes on in these kind of nefarious practices some of it is contravenes the rules some of it is just kind of widely tricks of the trade um, like, like I use the example of, of Mason Mount I interviewed his dad for the book at, at length he he was scouted when he was six by scouted by Chelsea right. so he lived in Portsmouth was a Portsmouth fan he was he was scouted by Chelsea in his very first game on grass as a six year old he never played a game of football on grass before and at six they spotted him uh, the scout approached his dad after, after the tournament that he'd seen him in and said I'm a scout from Chelsea. I'd love to bring Mason in this Friday. And his dad said, no, we're not interested. He just, just started playing football. We just wanted to enjoy it. Really not interested. The scout said, OK, fair enough. And then a week or two later, Tony Mount gets a call from the, the club's, the, the, the youth team's manager. The, the, the local grassroots team is called Bullhunt. The, the manager called him up and he said, oh, you'll never guess what. We've we've been invited to a football festival at, at Chelsea's Cobham Academy in a couple of weeks' time. All, all the boys are going to get to go and see their academy and see the facilities so he thought, and he knew right away what, what had yeah, gone on. Yeah, what know? a coincidence. They weren't really, yeah, exactly. They weren't really taking no for an answer. So once Mason went to that, um, saw what was on offer, the the, the facilities and and the, 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 the stars around the place and and whatnot, he was sold and wanted to go back and that was that. Was that. And he, they've been very happy there. He, he was quick to point out over there, however many years it's been, um, however old he is now, it must be a good 15 years or more. Um, but he did kind of as someone who was a non-league manager for many years himself, he's been in the game a long time. Tony Mount kind of knew what was going on and saw it coming and was kind of able to, to manage it as much as he can. But you can imagine how parents of, yeah. of kids who don't have that background in the game who aren't so kind of aware of, of what goes on might be might be swept up in it a little bit more. Well, that's right. And, and the financial inducements are significant, even if it's mm. not like, Premier League wages levels yet when they're six years old there are financial inducements in, involved and uh, especially for some of the the kids from a sort of more traditional football background not necessarily wealthy parents or wealthy communities there's a oh. lot of incentives there i mean I, I guess that ties into mount mount appears in your book again later um when you talk about sort of the pathway forward oh. uh, because that's the goal isn't it of youth football to I guess, to get players into to a professional career. And, you know, at one stage he's considering whether he's going to make it in the game and whether there really is a pathway into the first team. And for how what percentage of players who go through academies? Well over 90%. There's no chance of that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was that was that was a really interesting story to share because, of course, he did make it through, but he needed a lot to line up for him. To do that, so he was kind of one of the jewels of their academy for many years. He was he was widely regarded as one of the best prospects for his age in, in the country. Played at all the England youth levels, had approaches from other rival clubs, other kind of quote unquote big six clubs, but wanted to stay with Chelsea and backed himself. And ultimately, was proven right. But would he have gone there without Chelsea's transfer ban, without Frank Lampard coming in? And when he did, after he just had that year with him on loan at Derby, the stars really kind of aligned for him. So it just goes to show that even. If you have all the requisite talent and dedication and work ethic and and everything else that that is required of you, 
you still need an awful lot of luck. So for, for the clues who, who aren't of the Mason Mount level or, or who, who might be just as good or even better but don't quite have the stars aligned for them in the same way, then then they face a, a more uncertain future. So that's kind of kind of a damning indictment on the system itself that someone as as good and as 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 talented and as as, as highly regarded a prospect right. as Mason Mount still needed a lot to go for him that it was completely out of his control and for him to kind of break through at Chelsea. Yeah. And and some of it is in the players' control, I I guess, but it, it really depends on the coaches. So you talk about, I mean, there's a there's a part of your book that talks about what happened with Steve Walters and some other players who go from you know bad coaching to to sometimes even worse than that, and the impact it has on their their confidence, mentality, ability to make it in the game. It's we we forget sometimes these are kids. And and I don't know about you. I've got I've got three. So and I I don't know. I'm I would be much of a good sports coach. To, well, I'm, I'm, I I know I'm not actually because I I moved to the states 18 months ago and I now coach little league. I know nothing about baseball except it's a stick and a ball. So coaching kids is really hard, <laughs> and and it's especially as we know. And and yeah. sometimes football clubs get it wrong. Absolutely. I mean. Uh, yeah, I'm a parent too. I have I have two young boys. One, it's actually his birthday today. He's four. I've been uh, spending most of the afternoon trying to put together a climbing frame in the garden for him in the rain. But it's, yeah, it's something I've thought about too, going through this process of, of learning all these things and meeting all these people and hearing all these stories and thinking I had have my own little boy who might show an interest in football sometime soon. And, you know, I've thought about putting myself in that position of, of what would I do, what, what would I want him to, to do. And, and again, to go back to Tony Mount, he perhaps you could say it's easier for him because his, his son went through it, came came out unscathed and is now a millionaire superstar playing for England and Chelsea and, and, and whatever else. But he, he just said, you just got to make sure they're enjoying it. If they're not enjoying it, pull them out. You can't yourself have any delusions about what's going to be at the end of the rainbow for them right. kind of never really look beyond the next season and always just kind of check in with them and make sure that what they're doing is enriching them in some way regardless of what the outcome is going to be ultimately and just be honest with them at every point but yeah there's that responsibility you feel that deeply as a parent um you never know for sure i guess whether that's kind of mirrored at the club i think on a kind of institutional level it's not because of the sheer numbers as we saw with, with, with as you mentioned there was a seven-year-old boy who i whose story i told in the book yep. he, he broke his leg playing for a, a premier league academy he was he was uh, seven so he was too young to be formally registered but he was in pre-academies of four premier league category one london academies um, he broke his leg playing for one of them and worked his way back within a couple of weeks of, of returning to training he was he was dumped essentially his his parents were sent an email that I, I called this chapter dear parent guardian because i was able to replicate the, the email word for word as his father read it back to me dictated it to me and he said that they didn't even infill infill the name of the parents or the boy as there was it was kind of a boilerplate email where you're supposed to click to infill the name and it, it just left it as brackets parent slash guardian close brackets at the top of the email it was that impersonal it, nothing in the email itself related to anything that the, that the boy had experienced so he'd been with this club since he was four he was seven so that's almost half of his little life and right. he'd worked his way back from a, from a broken leg got back to doing what he loved and then was, was pretty quickly on the scrap heap. So I think at an institutional level, because of the numbers, there isn't that level of care that you feel yeah. as a parent and uh, that I know a lot of the coaches do feel too on an individual level. A lot of the coaches are, are deeply aware of that responsibility, but until that's mirrored higher up, I don't think it's going to it's gonna be adequate, essentially. And the, the heartbreak sort of goes throughout the, 
the journey from under sevens like that kid all the way through to the late teens where they're looking at a first professional contract and and where they don't make it they're sort of churned out of the system and and for the the players at the elite academies it seems to be particularly shocking because they're then looking at lower league football or even non-league football as a pathway back into the professional game and it looks completely different and so you tell a few, few stories in the book about the, the impact on them and and sometimes it's it's just about the player themselves they just didn't have it or it's about their confidence and mentality I mean you talk about Callum Gribbin um, a little bit there a, a player who many many listeners will have seen for United youth teams who still many people can't believe didn't make it because of the talent he he held but there you know so many factors but then they're dumped and they're sort of lost somewhere in the system uh, and having to make a really hard choice about whether to try and make it up from level seven back into the pro game or not and there's some interesting stories in the, in the book about that yeah, that that comes back to uh, what I mentioned earlier about there being a real gap between what the what the game believes to offer in terms of aftercare and, and, and provisions for welfare, what yeah. the lived experience of the people I spoke to suggests. So, what I found to be particularly damaging is when a player is released, and so they face that initial rejection, but then that rejection is compounded by 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 the the trial process that they engage in from then on. So. If a player wants to stay in the game, if they're at least at 16, 17, they want to stay in the game, they can go to these um, exit trials um, that the EFL and the Premier League run for their academies, whereby it's kind of it's been likened to a cattle market for, for young footballers, right. where there might be 150 players on on one day, they'll, they'll be at a small non-league ground, or sometimes at Loughborough University, there'll be 100 or so of scouts will be in attendance, there'll be your chance to kind of get back in somewhere and, and, and generate some interest but you've got like you might have 20 minutes of the game to perform you might be playing out of position with, with players you've never never met let alone played with before so you have no kind of chemistry with and you're out there trying to kind of fight for your football in life essentially right. and you're just hoping that somebody's going to tick the box to say that they're interested in you. you know, scouts are there, they're not supposed to approach you directly but it has happened where they kind of press their card into the palm of a parent but it's kind of like football and speed dating in a way that they just kind of tick their box and you find out later whether they're interested in you so that might lead somewhere it might lead to another trial down the line one of the, the young lads i spoke to was released by by following a guy called um sam armsworth and he found that within a couple of weeks of being told he wasn't good enough for Fulham, who were a premier league academy at the time he then went on a trial at brentford and was told he wasn't quite good enough for them then he was on a trial at colchester and again was was rejected after initial positive signs then before he knew it after four or five trials in a couple of weeks span he was playing in the seventh tier just to kind of or maybe in the ninth tier actually just to, on, on a part-time basis just to kind of keep right. his toe in um so you kind of left reeling by that 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 compounding rejection on one after another from being told you're not good enough to be a premier league footballer to being told you're not good enough to be a league footballer and that's a lot to deal with for a, for a young a young person who's kind of staked their their future in, in the game um to, to you know just be questioning all of that and uh, he felt he certainly felt kind of cut off didn't have any any major support from from the club certainly or from um any of the outside organizations organizations who profess to help so right yeah that's kind of the way the way it works and it's that that when rejection piles on top of more rejection that can really beat a young person down i think yeah i i, I guess it, the the club see is a trade-off don't they so for time and investment in aftercare resources in order to you know that's not their motivation their motivation is to get players through to the first team or get them ready for sale 
as you you point out in some you know, in some cases or a bit of both uh, and looking after the place afterwards is time and resources that they they don't necessarily feel that they've got it it kind of makes me think of the other side of the EPP that's that's pretty controversial and that's the kind of financing side of it because there's a lot of provisions in the in the plan that cost to be a category 1 academy and as a result some clubs have dumped that status Brentford being a, mm-hmm. a particular case in point and and who've just gone for a B team essentially the old reserve team style of doing things but it's still even 10 years after its introduction pretty controversial isn't it because it also has provisions about how much a player is worth from age 9 and up yeah yeah, the fixed compensation is a, is a big, big controversial point within the game. The smaller clubs feel it benefits the bigger clubs and allows them to stockpile. So as a kind of brief explainer for those who are unaware, any young player who signs with an academy at the under nines level, which is the earliest point at which they can do it, then has an automatic value attached to them. And it's dependent on how long they spend in an academy and what level that academy is. All academies are graded one to four under P with one being the highest. That's United, Liverpool's, the... Chelsea's and all the ones you've heard of. I think there are about 30 Category 1s now. Um, so the longer you've been in a Category 1, the more you're worth. And I think it just adds up over time. And that it's to save wrangling and it's to stop. But the idea is that it, is that it stops players being caught in limbo as, as clubs argue over a fee and yeah. whether or not they're allowed to release a player. If, so now it, it, there's, a, there's a fixed fee. If, if a, club, a buying club pays it, they get that player. But yeah, as I said, the smaller clubs feel it benefits the bigger clubs they're allowed who can come and hoover up their talent at an early age and they're left with very little compensation. That's what motivated the Brentford to do away with their their academy and, and, and go for a B-team system. So they let go, I think, around 120 players and shut down their academy operation because uh, they lost Josh Bowie to Man United and young right. Carlo Povera to, to Man City. And I think they, they said they got about 60 grand's compensation combined for the two. And they were like, well, what's the point if, we, if we're nurturing this talent only for them to be swept away at 14, 15, 16 before we get get a chance to, to, to bring them through? Then there's, there's, there's no point in us investing in in Category 1 or Category 2 Academy, which you can understand. So, yeah, the, the, the fixed compensation element of Elite P is a, is a big bone of contention. And, uh, yeah, as you said, it's very expensive to run one of these academies, which leads to um, them becoming kind of uh, very much run as businesses that, that have to kind of justify their own existence, and that's where the rearing players for sale comes in. So one of the clubs I went to was was Berry before they, before they went right. under, literally a few weeks before they went under, actually. And, and I opened the book with that, by kind of juxtaposing their academy and what was going on there with what goes on in Man City because right. interestingly Barry were based at Man City's old training ground in Carrington just down the road from United and you can still see and as you put into the car park you can see all the old signage um, from when City had been there you can see the words Abu Dhabi and the City Crest where it had been pulled off the, the facade of the building but it hadn't been painted over and the, the words Barry Football Club were, were falling down and there was no C and no B in club and nobody had ever bothered to replace it there was just no money for anything and the academy manager there Mark Litherland who's now at Bolton he explained to me how their best prospects they, they were they were essentially rearing for sale rather than for the first team they they opened about how they, they, they refer to championship and premier league clubs as, as their customers. So they, yeah. they had a, a specialty in producing ball-playing centre-halves who then go on to fetch them a couple of hundred thousand pounds maybe for for a premier league club. There were there were several examples that, that I noted in the book. So that's kind of what um, a lot of academies have to do to, to kind of justify their existence is, is raise these players for sale and even... The likes of Man one of the most prolific at it. They yes. they raise the, the, their their academy is 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 a profit machine. They raise hundreds of millions through the sales of players who 
make very little or, or no at all impact at, at first team level as we've seen over the years so yeah it's very much a business which is i think a result of the the costs involved in, in running a club academy yes there's it's not in your book but it's it's uh, there was an interesting question put when the glazers first came in at united 2005 in that they said could you make money out of the transfer market and sort of david gill laughed it off and said no of course not we're a buying club united but actually some of the elite clubs have really do have a profit center the Chelsea being one who I mean I don't suppose anyone at Chelsea would ever say it but it almost looks like that's run as a fourth income stream you know, match day TV commercial transfers uh, and it's all a bit unseemly isn't it <laughs> thinking about these kids from age six and up as being a potential profit center yeah, and, and Chelsea are one of the clubs, as I mentioned at the beginning, who are very closed off. I wasn't able to penetrate them yeah. too much, apart from speaking to people who've had experience from there who'd moved on. And uh, so scouts worked for them previously, and obviously Tony Mount, who could tell me what Mason had been through from that perspective and some ex-coaches. But yeah, they're, they're one, one who are very guarded in what they put out there. So I, I do wonder if that's a reaction to some of the stockpiling accusations that get thrown out. Yeah. And like you said, the raising players for sale who've never... Yeah, someone like Lewis Baker is quite a tragic example. You know, he's right. one of the best young players in the country. I think he was a world champion with the under twenties at one point, but I think he left the club just a few months ago at twenty six, twenty seven, something like that, right. having played maybe what one appearance or something like that. So this really gifted young midfielder, who was the type of player that that had real prospects for England with with his style style at the, at the time, just never really got a chance and then completely stagnated. And there are a few examples who are similar. They get caught in that system of loans that, that Chelsea operate and they they stagnate they tread water someone like mason man was able to kind of pull himself out of that but there are there are dozens of examples of those who haven't who are still stuck in that or who have lost six seven years of their their career to it right yeah and i mean i guess contrasting with that well manchester united just won the fa youth cup so maybe they've come out the other side of the trough but you have some 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 interesting anecdotes about both united sort of failures to produce players are those that notion is rejected by the coaches that you interviewed but also failure to compete for transfers at one stage and and the sort of bureaucracy around the club Mm -hmm. stopping United moving quickly to to capture players which maybe they worked out I suppose given the rush to sign players before Brexit came in yeah that was quite evident wasn't it it was quite the, you see it was quite obvious that they were aware the tap was about to be turned off so they got in as many as they could and they say no as well they say that's not why we suddenly signed eight or nine <laughs> players from uh, around Europe but um, yeah yeah, I spoke to Derek Langley, who was that yes. used to run the youth recruitment for United. Who left on very kind of bitter terms with the United, and and had some quite scathing things to say about Ed Woodward and his operation. And I think there was a time there where United were desperately lagging behind other academies. Um, it's certainly in terms of recruitment, they had Lang- Langley told me about how they had reports on on all the young Ajax players of that that yeah. Champions League semi final run long before they were they were stars, and they could have moved for them, but could never get the okay from the higher-ups. They had a deal in place for Diogo for Meccano, the, the, yeah. who's now at Bayern Munich, the centre-back, when he was 16. They had everything agreed, but an oversight, administration oversight of them failing to get the agreement put down on paper, he said, was was what scuppered that deal. He, he and his rep, The player and his representatives went away and came back asking for more money after they'd already agreed what to what to the terms of the deal. Langley said, well, to the, the club secretary at the time, he said, if you're not... 
they've got anything inked on this? Did we not? Did we not pen that agreement? They said no. We left it as verbal. It was it was not binding. So they came back asking for more money, and then before they could kind of react to that and and, and go back to the table, he agreed to deal with I think RB Leipzig or, or one of the Red Bull teams at the time. So yeah, there was just a lot of examples of players who who were missed at United at the time, but it is something that I believe has been addressed and, and, and worked on. I think the, the current regime are, are a lot better at that sort of thing than, than was the case maybe three or four years ago. Yeah, and we'll see. I mean, of course, towards the end of the book, you talk about the the pathway and the ability to, to make it as a player, but also as a club, I, I guess. We'll, we'll see whether United now have a current crop of players who, who will make... I can say, honestly, I mean, I've seen plenty of them. And they're all talented, mm-hmm. of course, because you have to be to, to be playing for United's under-18s or 23s, but still, the chances of, like, one or two making it into the first team... As to the level that, say, Marcus Rashford has, who you talk yeah. about a fair bit in your book, are still small, and that's just that's youth football. It's it's hard. It's a very steep pyramid, and most of them fall off it. Yeah, it it, it, it is, and and like I said, you need that element of luck, I think, to get over the line. I think the biggest leap is the one between being a, an elite youth prospect and being a first team regular. There's a, there's a, there's a long way to go between that, and it, it requires a lot of luck. Which, like, like I said, Rashford was one of the people I used as a as kind of a case study in the book. And I spoke to the coaches who worked with him. We brought him up and talked about all the kind of care and attention that went into making him the player he was at 18. And then he got the opportunity because of injuries to to Martial in, in, in the warm up and uh, and to to Michael Keane who probably would have been ahead of him. I'm um, sorry, Will Keane would have been ahead of him in the yeah. in the pecking order. And um, before that Michelin game, had he not injured himself just a few days before, so. He still required that that luck and the fact that he, he came in and was able to start a game in in his what was at the time his preferred position. They were they spent the last two years working on his yeah. skills as a striker, his movement, his finishing, and then he gets the opportunity to play there and to start there again. You know, fairly middling opposition at home at Old Trafford rather than the way most most young players are introduced to the first team is usually stuck out wide if they're a stray, even if they're a central striker, a goal scorer primarily, they'll be they'll be put on the wing that or a mid central midfield will be put on the wing because they can't be trusted in the middle. So they'll be playing out of position, they'll be getting garbage time minutes at the end of the game and um yeah. that's what they've got to work with and, and to try and impress. So he, he was quite fortunate in, in many ways he was able to kind of grasp the opportunity that was given to him. So yeah, with with, with the talent that's there now, they're gonna need something something like that probably to to, to really make their stamp. Uh yes. They say hope is not a strategy, but in a, in a way, like hoping that there's a batch of those kids that can actually make the leap is 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 something that United probably need to progress. You you actually in that chapter about when you're talking about Rashford and the changing positions. So, so there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about. One one the insight on how how coaches think about a player's position and may and may, sometimes it's luck, but sometimes it's something they see. So you talk a lot about Trent Alexander-Arnold. I don't want to, not that I want to big up a Liverpool player, but generally regarded as a, a bit decent and how coaches sort of spotted something in him that could work at right back. And, and then also there's a lot of detail about how coaches think about the kind of technical side of the game and the ability to use space and timing and movement uh, as well as lots and lots of video analysis and analysis of how players have done and in order to get that through to the players and the sort of hyper technical training that at least the elite academies take part in so it's, it's kind of really interesting insight I thought into how youth coaching works and how it is that this factory churns out these these high quality players 
Yeah, so it might be might be kind of sacrilegious in many ways, but I kind of used uh, the example of Alexander Arnold and Rashford together in the same chapter and kind of put them together to show how these two similar processes are happening within these two rival clubs at, at a similar mm -hmm. time. This kind of relearning that was going on. Uh, so Alexander Arnold was being converted from a midfielder to a right back, and Rashford was being converted from a winger or a number ten to a, to a number nine. And yeah, that that process of feedback and video analysis and this careful approach to to a development was something that uh, was explained to me by uh, the Liverpool coaches, uh, Michael Beale, who's now the QPR manager, and um, Neil Critchley, who's just replaced um, Michael Beale as Aston Villa's assistant manager to Gerard, had been at Blackpool. They were the two of the coaches who worked most closely with with, with Alexander Arnold in that period. And they, they, I interviewed them both for the book, and um, they explained how some of it was kind of uh, physical, and a lot of it was on the training pitch of just getting wingers to go at him and go at him, and, and kind of let him sort of try and learn to swim in those sort of shark-infested waters, really. But a lot of it was feedback, a lot of it was going into the video room and, and getting buy-in from the player and saying, "Look, we think your skill set aligns well with this position for a very specific way of playing that will that will help you." in your career it'll give you the best chances of making it in the first team here as well and that, yeah. that, that proves to be right for him and then what I found most fascinating about Rashford the United side of things I spoke to Colin Little who is now the Salford manager who, was, who had Rashford under 16s when he was being developed into a striker they were working on his finishing Usually what you find with the most talented player in, in a given age group is that they'll be played with, with older players. They'll be, they'll be what they call stretched. They'll, they'll, they'll play up an age group or two. Uh, with Rashford, they decided to hold him back. They wanted him to get more looks at goal, essentially. They wanted him to yeah. play with smaller, less physical players, uh, less experienced players, so that he'd get more chances to refine his finishing. So rather than uh, under-16s, him being stretched and playing under-18s football, which he was, he was capable of from a skills perspective, they held him back to, to, to work on his finishing and, and getting more looks at goal and uh, and kind of refine his, his movement where, where there might be like a little bit more space. So I find that really interesting and it's quite right. an innovative approach, almost counterintuitive. With, it goes against the, the, the conventional wisdom of, of youth football of, of stretching players and challenging them in that way. Yeah, of course, there's, there's, as you note in the book, I think one of the coaches from United says, well, our goal isn't to win games, it's to... It's to Know, help players and of course most you know senior clubs or elite clubs now have sort of player development coach of some kind whose job it is to help make that bridge and I guess reduce the chances of a talented player not making it into the first team for for first team use or for sale one one of the interesting anecdotes you also talk about is the average age of teams in Germany and this is why players such as Jaden Sancho and Jude Bellingham and others have started to think about that as a better pathway. Not necessarily that it's better coaching, but something about German football and its financial model allows them to break through. And and we've seen quite a train of English players do that, as well as players from, well, where I live now around the States. It's a very common pathway now. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think it is it's the financial model uh, that is just not as much money swimming around in the Bundesliga. And I guess perhaps as well, kind of Bayern have a monopoly over that title, so teams are looking at other ways to to kind of finance themselves. I think Borussia Dortmund are quite open about that being their model of, of buying players young and putting them in and developing them and then making them into superstars and selling them for lots of money. We just saw that with Haaland. We'll see it with Bellingham next year, I'm sure. Um, many other examples, Dembele, Sancho. But yeah, there's, there's a, a genuine, generally, I think perhaps a little bit more faith in young players, a little more of a willingness to, to throw them in and to not only give them those those garbage time minutes that like I referred to before, but 
to sort of have the faith in them that, that they can they can do it. If that old adage that if you're good enough, you're old enough. I think they they really kind of live by that in Germany more than right. more than we do over here. I think that I think we feel as though there's so much money in the Premier League. There's there's millions of pounds at stake for every position within in in the, in the table. I think the clubs perhaps feel there's too much at stake to to take that what they will perceive as a risk of, of putting a young player in without allowing them. They don't, they don't want to allow them that necessary process of of, yeah. uh, of learning, of, of, of trial and error. Whereas in Germany, I think they have a more developmental mindset. And uh, yeah, they can see the kind of, they, they see the wood for the trees a bit. It'd be interesting to see what happens with United. I'm a United podcast, so uh, I have to bring it back to, to, to the club. But I think there was a level of frustration at the end of last season that... Ralph Ragnick didn't want to give minutes to some of the younger players and, and the senior players, the the ones that were being paid, are being paid the big bucks, the really big bucks, weren't doing it. So why not? And his excuse was, well, I don't want to put them in this situation. So it's like, mm, but maybe it's one of your own making, mate. But <laughs> <laughs> but now we've got Eric Ten Hag, who, who at Ajax obviously has a reputation for mm. Working with younger players, and it'll be interesting to see because he'll get a lot more leeway from fans if he fails, but gives younger players a chance than if he fails and doesn't. And I think that's probably true with a lot of fan bases. Isn't yeah, it? you want to see this pathway. I think there's there's still nothing like it for for a fan for for your product of the academy, especially if they're if they're relatively local to come through and, and kind of quote unquote make it. I yeah. think that's still kind of up there is one of the most exhilarating things that uh, a fan of a club can experience so yeah seeking that and, and, and working towards that is something I think will always buy a manager time from the fan base perhaps not so much from from his employers but I think with with Ten Hag you have almost the the kind of best of both worlds and that you have that faith in youth that, that Solskjaer probably had to a certain degree but you have a a, a higher pedigree of, of coaching and development, a, a stronger track record to that end than Will Solskjaer did. So not, it's not just bringing them into a bad situation like, like Renwick explained. It's bringing them in and thinking about what they need, hopefully, and and how to progress them and not just kind of, OK, you're here now, get on with it. It's, you know, you're here, let's let's help you develop and learn while while also contributing. So that would be the, the, the hope. Again, the hope's not a strategy, as you say, but yeah, I think that's what can be some some degree of an expectation for Ten Hag, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll we'll see. It's it's a, been a hard transition going from winning everything I grew up. As as the slogan goes, you know, Fergie ruined your childhood. Well, you know, he made mine. <laughs> so And uh, it's been a hard transition to, to complete failure and being sort of something of a joke. But but we'll see that, you know, in 60-something thousand people turned up at that FA Youth Cup final last season. Mm. So there's real appetite to see some of these players make it at United. So so last and, and not definitely not least, but, but you know, admitted we don't look at this area but that much on this podcast but you you talk quite a bit about women's football in your in the book and Mm. the challenges on the coaching side there both for female coaches of whom there are not enough and the standards of coaching at uh, women's youth level which which is kind of you know another part of development of the the women's game but as football in general to to increase the standards there as well so you know it'd be interesting your thoughts on that yeah, so this turned out to be my favourite chapter in the book to to write and put together was was one on, on women's football. So I went and spent the evening with um, Julie Grundy up at Liverpool's academy. I spent some time with Arsenal's female academy manager James Honeyman, and then yeah, I spoke to female coaches who were work, working in the men's game as well to to 
to discuss their experiences because uh, at any one time there are only ever a handful. So I spoke to Manisha Taylor, who who is a yeah. QPR and did really well. So yeah, I interviewed her and, and got her story. Really, really inspirational person with a really incredible story of what she's overcome to get to where she is. And yeah, it's just really heartening to see how well she's doing and how she's progressing at, at QPR now. And yeah, and hopefully inspiring others to, to do the same and follow suit and inspiring clubs and um, policy shapers to... to create those pathways for all women in the men's game. On the playing side, I guess one of the most interesting takeaways I had from from my discussions with with academy managers, I was speaking with James Honeyman from Arsenal. He was saying that the fixed compensation aspect of EPLP that we discussed earlier has been probably the most controversial aspect of it within the game. Right. He said the women's game could probably do with something like that because at the moment there are no protections for clubs and their players, so one club can come and snatch another player and there's no recourse, essentially. There's no... Um, financial compensation whatsoever. So clubs and the people investing in clubs are reluctant to invest because for fear right. of losing those prospects. So he thinks some degree of a of a fixed compensation system or something along those lines might actually help and inspire a bit more faith from the the money people to to invest yeah. more in that side of the game. So that that was that was probably my most interesting takeaway. And then just generally that the women's game, the women's youth game, appears to be in a place that. The approaching kind of a crossroads that the men's game sort of ploughed through a decade or so ago, and it's going to be interesting okay. to see whether they learn the lessons and, and whether they take any any you know kind of avoid any of the pitfalls that the, the men's game has fallen into. Well, it's I mean part of it's about money and resources, but part of it's about attitude as well of of clubs, isn't it? So I think uh, I was just looking at Arsenal's accounts, and they spend about four four or five million pounds a year on the women's team, but most of that is basically subsidised from the 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 quote unquote men's club, the parent company. So the the money is just on a different level completely. For now, we'll see. I mean, there's def- definitely appetites. We've seen some big crowds are both in England and around Europe. Okay, well I guess we'll leave it there. This is. Uh, uh, it's a really it really fascinating book I've got to say I mean I learned a lot about youth football you know I, I watch MUTV to, to <laughs> understand youth football and there's certainly listeners who who dive into this area much more than I do but but uh, this is you know really fascinating about both the policy and the structure and the pathway and the people involved um, and the heartbreaking stories and the skullduggery and the money and um, all of that so yeah congratulations and is it it's out now or um yeah it's, it's out been soon? out a while yeah. it came out last summer so yeah it was yeah it's there's lots of united in there yeah it was fortunate enough to make a few of the kind of award lists this year yes, so yeah we're really pleased well, by congrats, the reception to yeah. it thank you yeah yeah no fascinating book and yeah uh, well yeah in all good bookstores as they say as <laughs> <laughs> I think you're supposed to say, yeah, well, Ryan, thanks very much for your time. And yeah, fascinating book, fascinating conversation. Thank you. Yeah. And hopefully I'm actually working on one about United's treble at the moment. So maybe we'll come back and chat to you about that one day too. We certainly will. Good times.